Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. My name is Peter Sherba. Today, I'm very excited to be sitting down with Vish Ramkasun, who's the Chief Technology and Data Officer of Publicis Hawkeye Canada. Vish, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. Why don't we jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey leading up to today? Sure. I think, uh, you know, my childhood plays an important role with that. So I'll take a few minutes just to uh, to walk you through what it was like growing up in, in the Caribbean, in a Caribbean household as well, in Trinidad and Tobago specifically. Awesome. Uh, very much... Um, you know, focus on education. My parents were middle-class, you know, professionals, mom's a nurse, dad's a chief probation officer for the island, and education was paramount. So it was study, 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 mixed in with a little bit of cricket and football. Yeah. Right. Uh, But yeah, it was an interesting time growing up in in Trinidad. Um, Obviously, now we're living in Canada, that whole prospect of moving to a different country created quite a bit of anxiety for me as a 17 year old young man, uh, you know, getting a call from his mom who emigrated to Canada a couple of years earlier saying, Hey, we miss you. We wish you were here with us. So I actually left first year of university, came to Canada and uh, was 17 years old, left my entire social network behind. We didn't yeah. have phones or Zoom or anything like that uh, in the late 80s. So, uh, you know, staying in touch with folks just meant writing letters. And right. then, you know, that was fast and furious as I came up and slowly diminished. And then Canada. Oh, my gosh. Right. You know, 32 degrees Celsius every day in Trinidad. I arrived here in September and thinking to myself, who turned on the air conditioning? Meanwhile, <laughs> Outside, right? So it was a bit of an adjustment from a climate perspective. Uh, the good news is we have lots of family up here. So they made me feel real comfortable. And uh, yeah, it was just a really interesting transition from a tropical island to Toronto. Right. Um, but reality set in very early for me as an immigrant because, you know, part of going to school was also trying to support the family as well. So I put myself through school um, while working, which was very interesting. And I remember my first job was working at a company called Coil and Corrugated, and I made cardboard boxes after school every night. Uh, The cool thing about it is that my supervisor gave me a quota, and basically as soon as I was done, I could do whatever I wanted. So I worked through making my boxes, literally making boxes, stack them, and then get my homework done. Fast forward a few years, I got a co-op job working at an organization called Microbits. And they were a computer supplies and accessories dealer. So as you can imagine, pretty cutting edge for early 90s as an organization. Um, They saw the future. And I remember selling floppy disks and people buying things like that, you know, uh, so it was a very interesting time. And my my role was as their computer operator to do all of their backups at night. Uh, again, you know, I was changing tapes that were doing yeah. these backups that would store a whopping two megabytes of data. <laughs> um, but we ran the entire business on 35 megabytes of disk space. That's, you know, so Crazy. But, it took, but it took eight hours to back that up. Yeah. So, um, and about five different tapes. So anyway, so while doing that, obviously worked really hard at my uh, schoolwork, graduated, uh, came out, you know, as a software developer, that particular position from co-op turned into a full-time position. And that began, you know, that was the beginning of my IT career. It was also peppered in at a very early age, and I didn't realize it until much later in my career that I was surrounded myself with a marketing folks and also entrepreneurs. This was a privately owned business. Um, right. And, the, you know, the then owner at the time was super excited about having the right people to grow his business with. And I was 
pretty blessed to be part of that team. In fact, uh, I was writing code on an HP 3000 mainframe using COBOL. Um, the dot com, uh, you know, that whole rise to dot com throughout the 90s to the 2000s was uh, phenomenal for me as a developer because a lot of antiquated systems were using a two year number as opposed to four years, four, yeah. uh, four digit numbers. So the rollover to 2000 meant a lot of um, code needed to be updated to accommodate uh, that rollover from 99 to 00, if you will. Right. So yeah, it was a pretty exciting time in IT. And I quickly wor- you know, worked up the ranks uh, at this particular organization, went from computer operator to director, to manager to director to VP um, of IT. And that sort of springboarded my career. Working in that particular organization, I remember one of my fondest stories, and and this is, you know, for anyone starting their career, please don't be afraid of this. I think it it, it actually helped harden my uh, exposure to the world in terms of how nice your job can be at times. My first business trip, we, we were bought by a conglomerate in the U.S., and um, Microbits was bought by this company called Misco, which was led by another organization, uh, two owners called Lead Brothers, or referred to as the Lead Brothers out of New York. They bought a company called Power Up out of San Francisco and said, hey, Vish, can you go and grab all the data from this place? We're, we're going to shut it down. Yeah. It's like, okay, sounds like a fun trip. I get to go to San Francisco, right? Uh, but when I got there, I realized that as soon as I was done backing up this data, the 35 people that was left at that organization were all going to be let go. Oh, boy. Yeah. So really tough situation. But it also opened my eyes to the reality that even though I felt really comfortable in the role that I had at MISCO and the respect that I had you know, in North America as an IT professional, that things could change at any point in time. And it, it was a hard dose of reality for me. And it, and a, it also brought in a, a real deep human aspect to what we do and seeing these wonderful folks lose their jobs and me representing that final stroke, if you will, was right. tough, you know, really difficult for me to, to deal with because there was an emotional side to the business that I've never seen before, right? As an IT professional, it's usually ones and zeros, right? Um, but this emotional, uh, trip actually opened my eyes to the reality that we should never a get comfortable with what we're doing. Right. Um, we should always be thinking about what's next, and more importantly, never forget the human aspect of what we do and the, the implications of individuals' lives with what we do. So it was a really good lesson for me early on. But you know, fast forward a few years. Again, surrounding myself with marketing individuals, um, worked for another organization that was probably the largest direct marketer in Canada that no one heard about. And okay. essentially, their business model was sort of a publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes yeah. uh, model. And what a ride that was. Uh, we would give away cash prizes, and I literally had mountains of cash that I would have to do <laughs> inventory of on a monthly basis. And it felt very much like a mob movie because we would literally have stacks of cash sitting on my office, in my office, yeah. on my desk, and we would be counting cash. It was an incredible time, uh, really interesting as well. But during that time at that particular organization, I also learned a lot about marketing. Right. And the shift started to happen for me where it was becoming more of a business lead as opposed to an IT lead and uh, really truly understanding how marketing plays a massive role in moving businesses forward. Right. So my next job, I actually worked for an organization that concentrated on database marketing. And you can actually see the IT sort of implication there, right? So, you know, from that perspective, progressively with my role, we were building marketing databases to be able to ultimately execute on marketing plans 
And my marketing, I started to become more of a marketer, just organically, right. uh, you know, through osmosis, I guess, right? While working on these with these particular clients, I began to realize that I'm just as much as a marketer as I am an IT person. And I can't tell you how invaluable that was to my career because it gave me the ability to take IT language, if you will, and bring that into a business world. And for young IT professionals, if you're listening to this podcast, I would say, you know, be proficient at IT 100%. But the better you get at communicating, um, you know, technical requirements as it relates to business objectives in a way that business people can understand and consume and have that sort of aha moment, the better your career will be. 100%. Because that was categorically my secret weapon. I was always put in front of clients because I could take a fairly technical scenario and rephrase it in a way that business folks understood and more importantly, understood the benefit to their business. Almost creating what I like to call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which in another way of saying it would be, hey, if you didn't do this, you'd be pretty foolish, right? Uh, I think nowadays we call that FOMO, right? Fear of mission, right. missing out. So, but yeah, it uh, came back to little things like that, where specifically I was able to hone my skills in to be able to explain very complex technical situation uh, in a in a in a in simple language that business folks can understand. Um, and then the other twist that happened in the in my career was. This notion of data science, right? Because we started to collect a lot of data in, in the early right. 2000s. As, as storage become che- became cheaper and cheaper, and uh, the ability to access large databases with levels of expediency that didn't really exist in the 90s, um, we started to realize, oh, we're sitting on a lot of data. So, well, what do we do with that? Um, and that's where analytics played a massive role in shaping my, my career as well. Yeah. So analytics, really, the way I summarize the use of analytics in business as is related to data is really about being very cost conscious almost, right? So it's like you're not, analytics to me gives you the ability to provide efficacy with everything that we do as marketers or business people. So it was being financially responsible. It almost brought to the fact that you know, instead of talking to everyone the same way, we need to understand what motivates Peter versus Vish, for example. And maybe we want to talk to Peter slightly differently because his motivations for buying a particular product and or service is different than my motivation. I might be more utilitarian with my approach to purchases, whereas you might be more emotive with your approach to uh, purchases. So what we what analytics really did is brought a level of financial responsibility with the way that we target and who we target and how many people we target. Right. So and then came the you know the the massive downturn in the economy with the subprime fiasco and lo and behold analytics was on the tip of everyone's lips yeah. at every conference in the industry that I ever attended. Why? Because it started to bring to light that, hey, we need to do more with less. But more importantly, we need to do it smart. So how do we do that? So I surrounded myself with a few PhDs. In fact, uh, we had still do actually have a uh, a rocket scientist on staff. He has his PhD in astrophysics. And uh, it's quite funny because we always say, hey, you know, yeah. It's not rocket science, but in this particular case, <laughs> it, it could have been, right? So, um, so yeah, so we worked with developing very advanced methodologies to apply analytics to everything that we do. And the other thing I would say again here is that, especially for young analysts that are coming out and trying to get their career off the ground, if you don't have a mentor or someone that was experienced as my physicist or my my rocket scientist, right. um, academia. We found a ton of really great material 
through academia. So working through Harvard studies, um, I remember we got a, a pretty cool uh, piece on how to measure incrementality from uh, BU. We also got uh, how to really twist net promoter scores into something more meaningful to the organization uh, through, uh, I think it was University of California. So, you know, look at academia and, and that opened up doors for me as well, right? Because now it's like, I'm not a classically trained statistician or mathematician. Right. I don't have my PhD um, in either category. And what I found was academia was just able to supply and, and fill a lot of gaps in terms of being able to bring advanced methodologies to our clients and worked exceptionally well. Um, during that time, however, I realized that working for yourself and working with entrepreneurs all my life um, sort of opened the door to me starting to think, I wonder if I can get into business for myself. Yeah. And, you know, organically through conversations with individuals, I was very fortunate to work with a lot of great people. I mean, you know, in terms of shaping my career and bringing humanity back into uh, what we do as individuals and just trying to make everyone's lives better, the folks around us. Right. Uh, I'll take a, a quick tangent here for a second and say the employment in general is flawed. Okay. Flawed from the perspective of we spend maybe two hours in a job interview, right? Trying to assess whether or not we want to work with this particular individual. And we end up spending more waking hours with that individual than we do our own family. So I ask right. you, you know, how long did it take you before you got married? How long did it take you before yeah. you got engaged, right? So if the average person spends like six months to a year to get engaged and then maybe one year to two years to get married, think about that for a second, right? And now as hiring managers, we spend two hours trying to assess whether or not we want to spend more waking hours, I want to be clear right. about that, with the people we work with than in our own spouses, right? So it's, it's an interesting paradigm, right? Because we're yeah. forced to make these decisions um, in a way that I personally don't believe that we're set up for success. So all that to say is, you know, I've learned a couple of things along the way with that, and that is, you need to hire slow, hire slow. fast, right? And it sounds a little bit brutal when I say yeah. hire fast, but it's really in your best interest and that employee's best interest as well, right? Because yeah. you don't want to be in a toxic environment. Um, and oftentimes we do the exact opposite, right? right? We'll hire fast because we have this need, right? And we'll fire slow because it's like, who's going to do the work? Right. right. So it's a paradigm shift and it sounds a little bit harsh, but trust me, it works really, really well. And there's a humane way to do things, obviously. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so quick little tangent on that. Um, and I always, always say to never run from an opportunity, run to an opportunity. Right. Run to. So when this opportunity presented myself to open my own business with, uh, in partnership with someone who had an established business, I jumped. And the best piece yeah. of advice I got was, Vish, jump, the net will appear, right? Because an entrepreneur, right, that, that way of thinking is very, very different. You're, it puts a lot of pressure on you, right? It's not for everyone. It puts a lot of pressure on you because yeah. essentially you get what you put into this now, right? It's 100%. not a nine-to-fiver. You're not just working through a day job, so let's call it, where you're expected to perform a particular act. No, that, being an entrepreneur means you're up before everyone else. You're leaving last. You're always looking for new ways to advance the business. You're, there's a lot of pressure, but there's a lot of reward as well. Right? Yeah. So if you're good at what you do and you believe in it, good things happen. And I was very fortunate to, again, work with some brilliant people that showed me a lot of different things. I got to say, like, I listened to Tony Robbins 
coming up through my career. I listened to Zig Ziglar coming up through my yeah. career as, as for sales in particular. And if you don't think you're in sales, you're wrong, by the way. I don't, does not matter what your vocation is or what your role That's is. That's right. We're always selling, whether yeah. it's our, our superiors or subordinates. Uh, we're selling all the time. So I always recommend that you do some sort of sales training because I think it's important. Um, but most importantly, growing up with, yeah, as a young professional with mentors that helped me guide through my business career was ultimately the biggest impact. And the biggest single takeaway, apart from jump, the net will appear, yeah. was never forget the human side of what we do and always be humble. So humility is something that I've, I've worked really hard at. And, um, and I got to say, it, it, for me personally, I'd rather surround myself with a group of very bright, humble folks than a, a group of not so bright, aggressive individuals, right? Yeah. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to surround myself with those individuals to the point where we took our business to a certain level and we got bought three years later by a much right. larger organization. So it was a, it was a great experience, but it also brought to light that, um, you know, not everything is forever. Right. Right. And although the sale of the business was exceptionally good for everyone, um, it sort of put me back into, okay, what do I do next? So I took a few months off. I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to walk my kids to school, start, started going to Starbucks, um, started going to Starbucks to start planning out my days and what I'm, I want to do next. And um, it, was, it was a pretty interesting retrospective look at my career. And sure enough, I think it was like a month or two months in to this sort of retrospective uh, self-evaluation, my clients started calling me. Yeah. They weren't happy with the new company that bought us and <laughs> they wanted us to do some more work. So work started after talking to a labor lawyer, <laughs> we started, started to uh, do a little bit of work. And that's when my business just took off. So we were a pure play analytics shop, right? So helping clients with advanced analytics, doing predictive modeling, prescriptive, descriptive analytics. And uh, one day, one of my friends who ran a agency came in and said, hey, we could use your help with some technical infrastructure work to support some of our marketing campaigns using Salesforce. And giant pivot. I mean, massive yeah. pivot, right? So all of a sudden I went from, and our business went from being an analytics focused business to a services staff org type business. Mm. And agencies turned out to be the ones that needed it the most. Because of the volatility of business, peaks and valleys, uh, my team was able to come into the agency world and have a tremendous impact in terms of operations. Right. So to the point where started doing some freelance work with uh, publicists and actually Andrew Bruce interviewed me about nine years ago and he was talking about starting up a CRM group at publicists and he wasn't sure how to go about doing it. And I was very fortunate to be employee number two for Hawkeye at very publicists cool. and you know, we're, um, we're, I don't know if I can share numbers, but we're about 120 people now in yeah. that discipline. And I can say that it's a thriving business and yeah. the growth curve on it is tremendous and continually, you know, looking the, the prospect for 2023 is going to be even bigger than 2022. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the ride to get here. Um, I am now the chief technology and data officer for, uh, for publicists Toronto and uh, working really closely with our friends over at Sapient, actually a bunch of agencies. I work with our media group in general, Starcom, PubMedia, uh, work with a couple of our advertising quote unquote agencies, 
obviously publicist proper and also Leo Burnett and Sachi and Sachi and um, and supporting the CRM business out of uh, publicist Toronto. So yeah, so it's. No, I'm very excited and so much that I want to jump into and talk about and even just starting uh, kind of from the beginning as you talk about making that leap and immigrating over to Canada and the lack of, for example, to phones and Zoom, et cetera, and, and, and leaning into letters. And I, I just had this conversation over the holidays. It's early 2023 right now over the holidays with my own family. And my parents right around that time also made the leap from, you know, communist Poland in 88 to 89 over to Canada. And over those first couple of years, they were just reminiscing about how like it would cost multiple dollars per minute to call back to, to Poland. So they were sending letters every week or every two weeks. Right. And it's just it is. So, so it is an art and something that is like totally lost today. The the art of like writing a letter to somebody to update them on how life across the world is, is going. Right. So it's it's just really interesting um, to hear you bring that up, because um, funny enough, now almost going full circle to the end of what you mentioned, being in kind of CRM and uh, and email communications and how important that's becoming with the deprecation of the cookie and and how, you know, that is the primary way of communicating with consumers, right, in a first party way for most companies, it's interesting that that sort of digital writing, right, has resurfaced in immense importance, right, as a primary communication tool. And, and here it is mirroring its importance when there were no other forms of communication for many people to, to communicate long distance. So I'm just curious if that sparks anything, because it's a really cool parallel to see how it all kind of came first full circle in that story. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the fundamentals that I talk about all the time, too, as a business person, much and even more so as a family man, right, as a as a father and a husband yeah. and an uncle um, you know, or, and even a son is communication. Yeah. Right? So effective communication to me is pinnacle to any sort of relationship, whether it's a business to consumer relationship, uh, whether it's you working with your teams, your staff. I often find, my dad used to always say this. He said, son, there are no problems in the world. It's just communication. Yeah. Right? And 99% of these, oh, sorry, I, I'm going to retract that. I, I messed that up. He said, son, there are no problems in the world. It's just people. Yeah. And 99% of their perceived problems, quote unquote, it's all based on communication and usually right. lack thereof. So right. effective communication is really, really, really important. Um, I, I think personal life and also business, obviously. So the medium might change. The message might change. But your ability to communicate is pinnacle. Right. right. So, uh, yeah, you know, instead of writing letters or making the phone calls as, uh, you know, long distance, we couldn't do long distance and turn that you, at that time, you would have to go to a particular building to make a long distance call. Oh, wow. Right. In country was fine. Out of the country, you had to go to a, a, a facility to, yeah, to, yeah. to dial a long distance number. So it, be, it, it was cumbersome at the, at the very minimum. But, you know. Well, if you think about it, right, letters were important. That's when direct mail was ubiquitous back in the yeah. 80s and early 90s. Then came the call center, the dreaded call center, right, yeah. as a different medium. And that happened right throughout the 90s and gave birth to a bunch of phone scams and all this other stuff. And right. then we ended up getting the national do not call list to protect consumers and so on and so forth. So... You can see the migration, right? So we went from direct mail heavy, which letter format, right? Right. And then to the call centers taking over. They're still around to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, then there became privacy regulations that inhibited their ability to propagate and, and, and you know, uh, just use telephones as a means of communication without any form of responsibility. Right. Uh, so we had the National Duna Call List would curb that. And then the age of the email. Right. Right. 
So wait a second, we don't need verbal anymore. We could go back to text just in a different medium. Yeah. Right? And if you fast forward, uh, if you think about emails, then emails uh, gave birth to digital communication uh, through ad networks like Google. That's right. right. So now we have DoubleClick. We have other platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these social platforms now that we're now able to communicate on. But so digital, so we went from a very analog uh, communication um, network, if you will, to a very digital, but the message is still there, right? Yeah. That our ability to communicate is still there. Um, what's exciting about communication right now, right? I got to be honest, like it's an exciting time to be in technology or even a marketer. So if you've, I'm sure your audience have checked out ChatGPT, yeah. Um, at one point or the other, but you know, chat GPT can write you essays. My, my, I have a second year university kid and he showed me an essay that the AI wrote for him on a particular subject. And it was brilliant. Yeah. It's actually really good. Um, the chat GPT and the, the insurgence of AI now is a pretty cool time to be in technology because these AIs, as they're coming along with deep learning uh, techniques, that is the foundation for how they continue to operate and evolve, is bringing to light this new form of communication where the words and everything else are being, quote unquote, generated by a computer. Right. But if you think about it, so there's two schools of thought, right? So when I talk to my creative friends, Right, right. You can't replace a human, and da 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 da. And that's that's you know that's we shouldn't be talking about that. That's crazy, right? Uh, but the reality is, if we want to really move to a communication strategy that is truly one to one, going back to what I was talking about earlier about how we talk to Peter versus Fish, yeah. um, to do that at scale, exactly, you need some form of AI or automation. Humans That's right. just cannot keep up, right? If you have a user base of 17 million people, how do you communicate in groups of one? Right. Effectively, right? Or segments of one, sorry. Uh, so yeah, AI will play an amazing role in advancing the way that we communicate today. And I'm looking forward to that as the adoption of this technology becomes more and more available. I think, you know, um, I, AJ Dalal actually talks about, he's been talking about it for years, about the democratization of, of technology within right. organizations and in our lives. And um, I think, you know, there are, there's a definite role that AI is going to play. And it's an exciting time to watch how AI actually influences the way that we communicate. A hundred percent. And I think what's really exciting about what you just described, right? And this idea of being able to, let's say, personalize and communicate in a one-to-one -one way at enormous scale, at enormous scale, right? And at a frequency that is is quite jarring as well, right? The amount of communications to that one individual over a short period of time to generate all those, uh, you know, via human, right? It's just, to your point, not scalable, not possible. And it's interesting that the role of the, the marketer will change from, you know, sh it'll shift away from crafting every word specifically and more towards crafting the inputs that will then drive the generation of the words in that automated AI generated way. And that is a kind of paradigm shift also, which is quite interesting, right? And, um, It'll just become another tool that we wield, right? And while it might be a little bit scary right now, because, you know, I will say, uh, watching the endless videos, experimenting myself, right? And seeing somebody generate an entire website by just, you know, asking it to generate code to that'll produce a website that has X parameters, right? That's scary, right? For a lot of folks that could be scary that work in that field or whatever the case is. Um, but I think to your point, it is very exciting. And it, Brings me back to something else that you mentioned that brings up an anecdote that just, again, shows how incredibly um, 
far we've come from a technology standpoint. You talked about, you know, like your first experience working, uh, selling floppy disks, you know, backing up 35 megabytes of data yeah. on two megabyte floppy disks. And I think about my own experience like that. I had a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a side job coming out of high school for actually one of my teachers. She had a friend who was some executive somewhere, had his big old mansion, right? And he was super tech forward at the time. This was like, uh, it would have been like 2009, right? Let's say it was, uh, and he, ahead of the curve, would go to Blockbuster or any video or, you know, media store and buy DVDs, he was a huge movie buff, buy, buy DVDs every weekend, every weekend, every weekend. And he would bring them home and he paid me, this high school kid or just fresh grad, first year university, uh, to s come to his house into a server room where he had these towers, right? And he would get me to burn these CDs onto a network that he was building where it would sync up to all his TVs so he could then watch any movie he wanted from any TV in any room, right? Instantly, which in principle, incredible idea. If you had only on Netflix, years, on Netflix started, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then you think of all the wasted time and money and hours. Yeah. But it is just funny to think back, like those types of experiences would have seemed, you know, even cutting edge in the moment. And then only a short couple of years later, they just get blown out by by the new technology. And even more so now, right? We have videos of kids uh getting their homework done by Alexa, right? And now imagine what chatbot, as you said, writing full-blown essays for university grade classes. It is a truly exciting time. I just wanted to share that anecdote, but I think that that's, you know, something that uh, is really interesting across your story as you bring that up, especially considering how far we've gone. But so are you, are you familiar with Moore's law? Yes. So, okay. So we are effectively doubling the, the world's data every two years. That's right. But more importantly, we're also effectively doubling our ability to process that data every two years as well. Right. Right. So when I would say, don't feel threatened by AI, embrace AI, number one. Number two is you're actually, th I think most people think about it the wrong way. Think of, go back to your example about, you know, copywriters, for example, right? Um, they perceivably saying they're going to have less to do because this AI is doing it for me. But instead, think about the opportunity there where copywriters can now focus on a test and learn strategy. Right, exactly. Like at scale, to your point. At speed. Right. So they're, they're not sacrificing time to market. They're not sacrificing scale. And their, their ability to adjust in real time to use the right language to get that person to do the next desired action is now incredible, right? I, you know, with, with my analysts, I'll tell you, the hardest part of any sort of analytics project that we have is the data wrangling component. We spend yeah. more time getting the data organized in a way that we can actually use it to do our predictive analytics, for example, um, than we actually do on the models themselves, right? So I always joke around and say, like, I wish my analysts had more time to do analytics as opposed to, you know, the, the arduous, dirty work of data manipulation. Yeah. Right. As AI, the, I guess the analogy I'm trying to say here is let people do what they should be doing. Let copywriters try to figure out what is that emotional language that I need to use to be able to get someone to do the next desired action and, and actually use the AI as a tool to enhance the work that they're actually doing right. and give them the ability to test and learn in real time. Like think about the possibilities, right? Of course. It's phenomenal. Of course. Absolutely. And as, you know, a fellow data professional that works with personalization, testing and experimentation, it is truly exciting to be able to do, um, you know, at scale, at speed, really complex testing, right? With quick iterations, it's, you know, to, to just, see real business impact is is very exciting and it's only going to get easier and more um impactful with the inclusion of, of some of the the data or the ai that we have possible now i want to circle back though you know to a comment you made around your experience of going and uh completing a piece of work that then essentially sunset 30 35 employees or, or some number of employees and then how that essentially 
hardwired into your brain this idea of never getting comfortable because I had a similar experience in my first internship. I work for Rogers, which is, you know, the Canadian equivalent of AT&T from a telco perspective. And in the middle of my eight month internship, there was, you know, 800 to a thousand people were let go. And I remember walking the halls, you know, uh, day to day for the course of like three or four weeks and floors would get emptier and emptier and emptier. And, you know, that really drilled it home for me as well. Um, and then you similarly, you know, later on say this idea of never forgetting the human side of what we do, right. And then combining that idea of kind of never getting comfortable, not forgetting the human side with today's reality where early 2023, over the last six months, we've seen big tech, you know, release a lot of very talented and smart people. Um, and so how do you, for example, without fear mongering and putting pressure on employees as a senior leader, how do you make people not stay comfortable, continue to learn, upskill, kind of build themselves, you know, as a leader, how do you kind of drive that communication effectively, um, given the context of where we're at today and some of the economic hardships that are coming so that people continue to really level themselves up and keep themselves competitive and marketable, whether inside their current organization or outside? Yeah, it's an it's a really good question. I think we we can. So first of all, as a senior leader within this particular organization, uh, I am on record by saying that we cannot ever do more or enough, right, right? For that same purpose, keeping good talent is exceptionally difficult. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the ways that we could do that is through one-on-one mentorship. And there's a program that we have here on the floor at Publicis that gives senior members. Uh, allows junior staff to get access to senior staff. Right. So um, we have that mentorship program in place. It's an advisor program where you can just reach out to individuals and talk to them about pretty much anything. So I think that's important, right? So breaking down the walls of hierarchy when it comes to access to information for existing employees, right. especially junior folks, right? Um, they're, you know, I personally go on record by saying, I hate being called boss. I'm not right. anyone's boss. And on the floor here at Publicis, we say respect intelligence, not authority. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think, you know, access to senior leaders to help junior or mid-level individuals that are looking for actively looking for advice is Im- impeccable. Like, it's so important to any organization to retain to retain good talent. Um, it also relies quite heavily, Peter, on the individual themselves, right? And I've come to learn through my career as well that there are, and, and, and there's no right or wrong on this. I wanna be clear about this. If you fall into a category that I'm about to describe, it's perfectly fine. One is not better than the other. Right. There are individuals that I've worked with that are overachievers, right? They're always willing to do something more. And on the right. opposite end of the spectrum, there are individuals that I work with and still work with that are comfortable with doing what they do and not necessarily want to take on anything more. And I want right. to be clear about something. Neither one is better than the other. Right. It comes back to the individual. So how do you motivate someone who is not motivated to level up? Don't waste your time, right? They won't. And it's not that it's a bad thing. It's, yeah, I've come to the, I've come to the reality in my, a realization rather in my career that you can't turn someone into something they're not. And don't, as a manager, a people manager, uh, never try to do that, right? Because that person can still be a very good asset in your arsenal of employees, yeah. Uh, even though there's no real initiative for them to level up their game. It's okay. It's actually fine. But as a manager, you need to recognize that. Right? right. You need to recognize that. You need to, to be able to speak to that person in language and terms they understand. And more importantly, you need to set your expectations for that individual the right way. Right. On the opposite side of the spectrum, if you have someone that's over an overachiever and want to do more and that kind of stuff that requires a lot of work as well. Right. Because the reality is they could get bored or disappointed or not challenged. So you need to challenge those employees. So here's the paradigm. 
You as a technical person, Peter, you get promoted because of 80% of your technical aptitude and 20% of your people skills. But as soon right. as you aspire to do more, which is nothing wrong with that, and you get put into that leadership role, that equation flips. Right. You now have to be 80% people skills and 20% technical because you are now teaching as opposed to doing and you're right. delegating as opposed to doing. And more importantly, now you need to keep those individuals that are the doers motivated, right? right? So it's tough making that transition, right? You, you can no longer require on your technical aptitude as much to be successful. You now need to flip that equation and become a people person, right? And that requires work. And yeah. this is where mentorship comes in. And I feel it's really, really important that senior leadership in all of our organizations uh, have the ability to break down barriers in terms of titles yeah, and just be accessible to everyone. And that's why we say respect intelligence, not authority. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that sentiment. And I, I don't think I've heard it articulated that way. Um, respect intelligence, not authority, but I absolutely love it. And I think it rings true majorly. And I totally agree that I think with every individual on a team, right, they're going to have there are so many factors in their lives potentially that are influencing their appetite for quick or aggressive growth or whatever the case is, right? It could be comfort in their role. It could be satisfaction in their role. It could be that other aspects of their life are applying pressure and they need to be able to have stability and predictability in their role, right? Currently because of unpredictability elsewhere, but whatever it is, as, as you said, as a leader, it's understanding and managing to their situation and their appetite for growth, right? And and recognizing that and putting them in situations to succeed regardless of what that appetite is, right? And so I think that that's a really apt thing um, to kind of put out there. And for any kind of early leaders or even you know senior leaders, I think that's an important thing to, to grasp. Now, building on that though, understanding somebody's appetite for growth or you know maybe less so uh, in a particular moment this comment around hiring slow, firing fast that you made, that to me is, it was pretty uh, eye-opening. I had not heard that said that way, but it's absolutely true, right? We, I have been part of hiring teams that hired somebody after two interviews, right? Because there was an aggressive timeline. There was an aggressive need. The person had an uh, offer from somewhere else. We couldn't lose that resource or whatever. And whether or not it was a successful hire is irrelevant. But the point is, is we made a decision for you know a high-paid individual to come in off of like an hour and a half of conversation. And you're absolutely right. That's an enormous, enormous risk that you wouldn't really take anywhere else in your life uh, with that, with given the amount of time you're going to spend with that person. I'm curious how have given that kind of paradigm shift that you articulated in something that you've realized for some time, like, so what is the ideal hiring process for you then? And I guess I, I'm curious, I'm curious about that. And then also, once somebody is brought in, you know, this idea of, of firing fast, if you're recognizing, you know, you said doing it with humanity, I think that's really important. Maybe give an example of how injecting humanity into that situation might look. So there is no silver bullet solution for the hiring process, unfortunately, right? Um, all I can say is that one of the things I'm quite, I, I actually force myself to do this, is to always be networking. Right. Mm. That gives me the ability to meet people, even though I don't have an opportunity for you right now, Peter, just getting to know you. Right. So LinkedIn is a great space where you can actually LinkedIn with someone, uh, form a, a sort of electronic relationship with them and maybe yeah. even grab a phone call with them. Yeah. So I'm always networking. Always, 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 always trying to meet people, always networking, always talking to people. And that way, when opportunities come up to your point where we needed someone yesterday, right? Uh, I've actually got a pretty little group of networked individuals that I can reach out to. And I've already established some rapport with them. So it helps. Right. right? So as opposed to a complete stranger, I at least have a warm lead right. on a hiring individual, like hiring this particular individual based on what we're trying to achieve. The other thing too, is that it's, it's oftentimes very reciprocal. So it's like, you know, you talk to someone and then all of a sudden they might bring you an opportunity. Right. So I would say networking is key to it. Unfortunately, 
the hiring process is a hiring process, right? Yeah. Set up interviews. Um, I, I'm very disciplined in my hiring process. Everyone has a scorecard and I score everyone the same way. Right. right. But for me, it's always about the best person for the job and it's reliant on their score and how they answer questions. And the things that I look for is professional fit, obviously. Uh, I will go on record by saying that I always hire smarter and I encourage every hiring manager to hire smarter. If you can do that person's job better than them after you've hired them, you've made the wrong hiring decision. Ah. Okay. So always hire smarter. Always. Um, that's number one. Number two is uh, cultural fit, right? So how does this person, how do you feel this person is going to assimilate and work within the culture of the organization? And that ties back to the fire fast piece, right? Because ultimately, if the person's attitude is toxic, if, um, you know, they are not what you would expect um, based on their credentials from a hard skill perspective, so hard skill, soft skill, um, then, you know, the, unfortunately, the only way that we could actually do that test is by bringing them on board and then right. actually seeing what's happening. But don't wait. Honestly, do not wait. If you're yeah, here's another little tidbit that I say all the time. Trust your gut. Your gut, if you mm. apply the Pareto principle to your gut, you're going to be correct 80% of the time, which in my world, I think that's massively, enormously productive, right? So right. A big win. So trust your gut. If your gut's telling you this person is not working out in the first three months or first month, move on it. Obviously, the humane piece of this is to give that person feedback. That's right. where communication. Remember, we talked about communication. Right. So, the worst thing you could ever have as a hiring manager is doing a performance review where everything you say to the individual across the table from you is a surprise. Right. You should never be surprised about anything you're about to say about them. Right. Because you should be having active communications with that individual. So if someone's not working out, it's not going to be something like, okay, Peter, we need to sit down and talk about the last four weeks. Right. No, they should be getting feedback every single week, every day. Yes. To the point where when you do come to that realization that they're not working out and you do have that conversation, they won't be surprised. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, Peter, it's been my experience that oftentimes they'll come to me and say, hey, Vish, I don't think this is working out. Right. And I would say, yeah, you know what? I agree. And I got to tell you, I've worked hard. And when I say hard, I mean exceptionally hard to ensure that everyone that I had to let go, I helped them find a new role. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I think my win rate is like 98%. And the 2% were only because they didn't necessarily feel the need to go back into that particular type of work. They change fields. So, um, yeah. So I work very hard to ensure that I help find these individuals work by being a reference and being very honest with anyone that would call for a reference, right? Because right. not everyone's cut out to do everything, right? Yeah. And, and, and we know the hiring process is flawed. So that's where the humane piece comes in. So it's about recognizing that you're affecting someone's life. This has a ripple effect. So the more yeah. that we do, uh, the more we get. I believe so much in karma. I think um, that saying of good guys finishing last or whatever that saying is, yeah. is horse crap, all right? Yeah. I truly believe that you get out of life what you put into it. And my dad used to always say too, like, you'd be nice to people on, on your way up because you never know who you're going to bump into on the way down, right? right? And I still have relationships with folks that I had to let go um, that communicate to me every Easter, every Christmas, you know, uh, still reaching out, wishing me well, wishing my family well. And uh, yeah, it's that's the human aspect that I'm talking about, right? So remember, you're affecting someone's life with every decision you make when it comes to their profession and them working with you or for you. Um, so be respectful of that. Treat them like you would want to be treated and communicate, over-communicate to the point yeah. where there are no surprises. I often say, we're in the business of surprise management. We are. Right? <laughs> I like the that. The fewer surprises our clients or bosses or you know, superiors or even subordinates have, the better our lives are going to be. 
Nobody yes. wants to have that. Oh my God, what the heck is that? Right? Yeah. No one wants that moment. It's always a brutal moment. So we were always managing surprises, right? So it's like, oh, guess what? You're not working out, Peter. Well, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Yeah. You should already know that. Yeah, I, I think that that is so incredibly powerful. I mean, I completely agree in, you know, in rapid, timely, you know, specific feedback. And if that's happening on a very regular basis, then to your exact point, when you guys, you and an, uh, another individual that you report, that reports into you, whatever the case is as a leader, come together, th- to your point, no surprises, total expectation management. You're probably coming to the realization together, right? And that either makes it way more productive from a, how do we solve this by, by course correcting or, you know, what do you think the next steps are from here in terms of like finding another opportunity? And then, you know, this idea of taking pride in helping them find their next opportunity, I think is something that any leader, you know, early stage senior leader that's listening to this or might listen to this should walk away from. Because I think that that, to your point, in terms of putting good into the world and then kind of this idea of uh, you never know who you'll bump into on your way down. I, I don't think there could be a more poignant thing said than that. Um, Cause you certainly never know what's going to happen in your career or in life. And when you might need a, you know, an opportunity or a door to open. Right. And it, it, it certainly would help if you got a slew of people in your network that you've helped out um, ready to help you. So I think very powerful um, uh, kind of approach to that. And, and I would say, if you take all of that as a whole, that sure sounds like a silver bullet to me. Uh, I, I don't see the flaws there, but then, you know, the last thing I kind of want to touch on is, is something that you said also that I think can maybe be extrapolated beyond kind of entrepreneurship, but just uh, to anything that you want to take a chance on or a risk on, but this idea of jumping the net will appear. I've never heard that either. And so you've dropped a couple of nuggets on me today that I'm really excited about because I'm going to start using them. But I, I, I really like that because it's, I, I've heard a, another way of saying it, this idea of um, if you want something badly enough, the universe will conspire to help you, right? Or something along those lines was shared with me um, uh, by a woman named Hiba who who's on the podcast uh, many episodes ago. But Similar idea here that if you're passionate enough about something, you're willing to do the work and you take a risk and jump, right? This idea of the net eventually appearing is, is really powerful. And ha- have you been able to take that and leverage it outside of like the entrepreneurial side of your career and maybe just the more day-to-day, more corporate um, experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I, I use it every single day, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, there's, there's an element of free fall associated with that analogy, right? Yeah. Uh, and the free fall portion of jumping is the scariest part. Yeah. But again, I think that analogy applies to everything that we aspire to do, uh, whether it's new sales, for example, like I, I spent a ton of time on business development, right? And that's, if you think about it, it's a scary prospect because you have no idea what's coming, right? That's the free fall portion. The payoff is when you're able to prove to a prospect that we have something that you need. Yeah. Right. Um, and they buy into it and they say, yeah, let's do this. It's exciting. Let's go. That's when you hit the net and you go, okay, that free fall, that anxiety associated yeah. with the free fall, that unsurety of what's next, uh, comes back to you. And it's so rewarding. Right. So it's like, all right, it paid off. Now on to the next one. So it's yeah. almost, if you think of it, I'm constantly jumping off the cliff, right? And um, and the work that we put into uh, progressing and advancing what we do and our practice is the payoff. That's the net, right? Yeah. So it's analogous to my everyday life, right? There's so much uncertainty with everything that we're doing, uh, but if that's grounded in the belief that we actually can do something uh, to make our clients' lives better, make their business better, make them more profitable, then yeah, that, that it's it's well worth it. The anxiety of that free fall is well worth it because it's um it's what I call a non-zero sum thinking, right? So you might have heard of non-zero sum games, yeah, right. So, uh, so a zero sum game is a winner and a loser, right? There's, you know, you're, you're, you're all sort of, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, but a non-zero sum game or that way of thinking 
is a win-win, right? Yeah. So I try to apply non-zero-sum thinking to everything that we do, where it's not just publicists winning out of this. It's everyone, right? Our clients are going to benefit from this. We're going to benefit from this. Our staff will gain invaluable experience. Uh, our clients are going to learn it, you know, something new as well that they can apply. So this concept of non-zero-sum thinking for me is really, really important. I, I, I try to make sure that every time and everything that we do ends in a win-win as opposed yeah. to a win-loss, right? Yeah. No, I, I think that... I, I think that's a fantastic sentiment, and and I totally agree uh, that navigated correctly, that most situations should should result in win win, varying degrees of winning, but everyone should benefit in, in, involved, particularly in the professional space, right? Where you know uh, most people's professions and their jobs are means to an end to support the rest of their lives, right? So why should anyone be losing uh, in, in that sort of environment? So even that sort of thinking. Um, you know, is just another testament as to why you are kind of the leader that you are. And, and so, you know, on that sentiment, I want to say thank you uh, very much for jumping on the podcast. It's been an incredibly rich conversation between the topic of AI and the future of how it's going to impact marketing communications and everything else uh, that we've just chatted about. Love this conversation. Thank you, Vish. And I honestly look forward to having you on again in the future. This was great. My pleasure. I got a lot more to talk about. Apparently, I talk too much. So, <laughs> uh, no, honestly, uh, Peter, I think what you're doing is phenomenal. Uh, and I would be more than happy to be on again anytime in the future. You just say the word. <laughs>